The economy is crumbling, they say it's had its day. The workers are all rumbling, revolution's on the way, but I could never be a Marxist, it goes against the grain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You say, come up to Paul Newell, he went with Danny Baker. See you silly disco songs and reading Melody Baker, I'm seeing that a dunker. Welcome to Radical, a podcast about the radical aspects of politics, music and football. I'm your host, Cas Mudde. Today's guest is James Montague. James is an award-winning journalist and author of four books, including When Friday Comes, Football, War and Revolution in the Middle East, and 31 Nil, On the Road with Football's Outsiders. Having seen games in countries as far away and remote as North Korea and Yemen, James is the envy of all groundhoppers like myself. Today we will talk about his new book, 1312, Among the Ultras, a fascinating read about the most radical elements in contemporary football. Welcome to the podcast, James. Thanks for having me on. So before we talk about ultras, three quick questions which I ask all the guests. First, what was the first football team you ever supported? It's the first and only West Ham United. It's the first and only. You don't have any other team in any other country? No, I mean, I have teams that I love uh, to, to keep, a, you know, to follow, to, to, you know, because I have friends there and they have special resonance with me because of memories. Uh, some some of them, you know, across the ideological spectrum, I mean, I have a soft spot for Al-Ahli in Cairo, in Egypt, mm-hmm. because I spend a lot of time with their ultras. Um, Red Star Belgrade, I have, I have many friends there. Um, even friends for uh, Beitar Jerusalem, which is in many respects a quite uh, problematic club. Um, and uh, Hammarby in Sweden, who I've spent a bit of time with whilst researching 1312. Um, so, yeah, there's a few that I like their fans and have good memories of. But in terms of teams I support, um, West Ham United is the only one. You only suffer for the hammers. Well, it's, it's also a lot. If, you, if you're living in a city like Belgrade and people are always asking you, do you support Red Star or Partizan? Um, you know, same with when I was in Bucharest, whether it was Dinamo or Stour. It's just easier to say West Ham. No one really minds unless they're a Millwall fan. (laughs) So the second question is, what is your favourite political song? The first thing that came to mind was probably um, The Revolution Will Not Be Televised by Gil Scott Heron, a guy I saw him play in a jazz cafe in London in 2000. And, you know, when he was during one of his bouts of sobriety, probably my favourite in terms of whether it motivated me to do something with my life. um, If you tolerate this, your children will be next by the Manic Street Preachers, Uh which isn't my favourite Manic song, but it is a song about the Spanish Civil War. And it's a song that kind of inspired me to read Homage to Catalonia by George Orwell, which then kind of inspired me to go down the path of I've gone down in life. Maybe not football, because Orwell hated football, but that kind of way of reporting on a story by embedding yourself and, and really living a story. Cool. And this kind of brings us to the third uh, question. What's your favorite political book? Well, I, I would say in terms of um, inspiration, Homage to Catalonia. It's a book where George Orwell goes, and I mean, I'm sure your listeners have all read it, but you know, for those that haven't, um, George Orwell goes and fights on the side of the Republic during the Spanish Civil War. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a book full of bravery, but it's also a book full of integrity. I mean, Orwell was somebody who, you know, took on the left and the right, you know, right. Th- where he saw hypocrisy, he took it on. And, um, you know, as mu- the biggest story that you take away from that as much as anything else is is how Stalin and Soviet Russia or the Soviet Union, I should say, um, helps to undermine the cause against Franco's fascists. But the way that Orwell threw himself into that story and ultimately probably cut short his life. I mean, he was shot in the neck whilst he was making it. 
uh, whilst he was researching it. Um, and he died relatively young. And part of that can be straight, traced back to that injury. You know, it shows somebody who's willing to put, you know, their kind of art on the line, if it were. Absolutely. Okay, so let's talk ultras. Um, what motivated you to write your latest book? With my previous books and with the previous reporting, I've always been in and around the ultras, you know, the the most passionate, most organised uh, fans, you know, the supporters within the stadium or outside the stadium as well. And they'd always been kind of connected in some ways. I remember when I wrote When Friday Comes about football in the Middle East, I mean, one of the one of my first experiences was going to watch a Beitar Jerusalem game with La Familia, who's famously an ultras group that, um, you know, pretty problematic. I mean, they're quite racist. They never accepted an Arab player playing for them. There's a, there's a fantastic documentary called Forever Pure about the attempts to bring in Chechen Muslim players to play for Beitar Jerusalem, which was roundly rejected by La Familia and the fan base. But Ultras as a concept, um, as a part of football and part of society, were always part of all my books going forward. And when I was thinking about what to write next, you know, I realised that nobody had really had a good attempt at trying to tell the story of who and what ultras are and how political they are. Because everywhere that I'd been, whether it was in Egypt, in North Africa, uh, whether it was in Eastern Europe, uh, Italy, Germany, wherever it is I went, you know, they, these were important political actors usually on the extremes of the political spectrum and right. yeah like i said nobody's really written much in english there's quite a lot in german a lot in academia uh, but I, you know i felt that kind of 10 15 years into my career i kind of made enough inroads with the community that i could probably write a book like this because they're very very hostile to the media very hostile to the press and it's a, it's a subculture that really guards its privacy and anonymity which is a really difficult thing to do in the 21st century and so it was it was something that i i felt that it was only now that i could probably do a decent job of reflecting you know who they are and what they believe in Let's start there first. I mean, for, for many people, particularly uh, who just follow the media, uh, an ultra is kind of the same as what we would have called a hooligan in the 1970s mm. and 1980s. So what, what defines the ultra and, and what is the difference between the ultra and a hooligan? Well, hooligans are fighters. It's violence, nihilism. Uh, hooligans come out into, in the football context, come out of kind of the UK, out of England in the 1960s and 70s. Ultras are slightly different, a very different proposition, although in the modern iteration of ultras, hooliganism is, is still part of it. Ultras emerged from Italy in the late 1960s. And what happens is that the kind of, I mean, anyone who studies Italian history will know that the late 1960s, 1968 onwards, is a really turbulent time in Italian politics. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of extremism, there's terrorism, far left, far right terrorism, uh, the years of lead that take place over the next kind of 12, 15 years. And what happens is, is the pageantry and the passion and a lot of the aesthetic of, of the political protest of the, of the town square moves into the into the football stadiums and it's the first time that organized fan groups which had existed in Italy over you know the previous kind of 10 to 15 years um, they start to take this name ultra which derives from the Latin for to go beyond and it's a way of supporting and a visual aesthetic of supporting that involves you completely subsuming yourself into a culture into a team into a sub uh, section of your uh, support almost so that you follow your team 24 hours a day, seven days a week, obsessively uh, using climactic displays of uh, choreography of pyrotechnics 
drums uh, usually led by uh, the most charismatic person, usually a man that you find in the curva behind the goal uh, called the capo, who would lead the songs and would lead the chants. And of course, what happens over the next kind of 10, 15 years is they are reflective of the strata of society where they're drawn from. So over the years, it becomes an extremely political institution. It's also something that is very, uh, it has inbuilt enemies. I mean, you obviously have the other teams, but in Italian, you have something called Campanilismo, which is, it means bell towers. So, you know, Italy is a, is a fairly recent construct and regionalism and the idea that you have an, an oath to the bell tower, your church tower mm-hmm. of your town, of your region is very, very strong in Italy and very strong in Italian football and Italian football ultras. So essentially have is a a set of rivalries uh, based on something much more than just being, you know, two two teams in the same city. Uh, There's there's hundreds, sometimes even longer amount of history that goes behind that. And eventually, yeah, you get to the when they first start, a lot of these groups are reflective of the politics around them. So they're far left. They're named after Palestine terrorist groups, uh, all sorts of institutions. And then during the 80s and 90s, as Italy and certainly uh, working class white men move away from kind of far left politics, more towards far right politics, the groups then take on a far more kind of right wing identity as well. So so it's it's much more than just hooliganism. It's actually what you see as modern ultras today is something that comes from Italy, but it's also mixed with forms of support that kind of predate it but the Baras Bravas in um in Argentina which is very similar to the ultras uh, the Torcida uh, incredibly influential from Brazil and of course hooliganism from England all mixed up with this Italian aesthetic and it creates a kind of way of life and a subculture that kind of exists and is recognizable today right and so before we go into let's say the more party politics or ideological politics and you touched upon this um, a few times. Like there's a there's an interesting gender element. And of course, yeah. um, most of the terraces are predominantly male, um, as well as I would I would argue predominantly uh, majority ethnicity. But in your book, you also notice a few times that there are females um, in ultra movements. Is that something very specific to certain cultures, like we which in general have more emancipated views and less strict gender roles like Nordic countries? Or is this something purely individual that you have seen in certain countries that have actually pretty machismo cultures, but where there nevertheless are some prominent women in ultra movements? I mean, I would say say yes and no. I mean, within the ultra movement, and because there is a strong violent element to it at times, and you often find where there is, there's violence, it's... (laughs) men are there you know uh, men are statistically much more violent than women so it's no surprise to find that that situation but I, I was very surprised over the years to see the amount of women involved in in the ultras movement standing on the curve especially in uh, Egypt mm-hmm. I was very surprised to see the amount of women uh, in the stadium there and uh, Indonesia which is another country that I it's actually the last chapter of the book and I was surprised about the amount of women that you see there what it is I guess is, is partly the prevailing culture so countries like Sweden and Germany in particular, uh, you know, have far, far further along the lines than, say, Eastern Europe. So you won't see many women except in a very marginal role in ultras groups in Poland and Hungary. Now, I mean, we could also argue about the role of women and how much freedom women had in Soviet, uh, sorry, in communist and post-communist societies. But yeah, it usually it ends up Germany, 
Sweden. And for my book, what was the most interesting example was going to watch LAFC on the West Coast of America Mm -hmm. and seeing how many women were involved in not just, you know, in the day to day running of the 3252, which is an umbrella organization based on the unity of Borussia Dortmund, which is the, the kind of umbrella ultras group there that, you know, organizes things on the yellow wall, which is the biggest, you know, freestanding uh, terrace in in Europe and women were playing an absolutely crucial role and they were actually in the capo stands it was the only time I saw women in the stands leading the crowd in chanting which is something which is often has often always been you know the preserve for men but MLS is a far more pro- politically progressive sport than any others in the US so I right. suppose in that respect it's not that surprising but it was still you know it was incredibly unusual after all my travels around the world to see that and to be close to it and it was it was quite kind of inspiring as well yeah, and it, it kind of takes us back to what you said previously about, in a sense, the role of class in the ultra scene as well. Like, of course, traditionally, football has been a working class sport, and particularly the terraces had a very working class dominance before gentrification, whereas the MLS in the US, like football is, it's much more middle class affair. But I was wondering about the, the politics and particularly the role of radical politics. What you said mm. that initially ultras coming more from working class be more radical left. But over the years, and particularly in the 21st century, they have migrated it to more to the far right. So what does what role does the far right play in the ultra scene? And is the far left still effective? Yeah, I mean, as I mentioned earlier, and it's something that I think is is being recognised more and more. I mean, we know I mean, authors like Simon Cooper, um, uh, Goldblatt, you know, people like that, Ed Goldblatt, who talk about uh, the terraces being reflection of society in some respect. And so when I, one team in particular that I uh, spent a bit of time with or, or spent time with their fans and some of their ultras was Roma. And Roma is a fan, fascinating example of what happens to the politics of a working class fan base over a period of time. So as Rome becomes, Rome changes, as inner city Rome changes from being solidly pro-communist, uh, very left wing, to becoming much more right wing than far right, explicitly anti-immigrant uh, in some respects, it becomes, that is reflected absolutely because the, the people who make up the, the, the curve are the people who uh, come from those those communities in those neighbourhoods. So it's something that, that you, you recognise and Roma was a, was a really prime example of that. It does mean that in Italy, for instance, there are very few left-wing ultra groups around. It's certainly in the Eastern Europe, where certainly a certain strata of society is very right-wing and is very, on, on some cases, almost neo-fascist. You would then see that the ultra groups reflect that. And so there is very little room, say, in Poland or Bulgaria for progressive ultra scene. Now, that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Germany is a prime example where you have it. Sweden is a bit more apolitical, but there are a handful of of left-wing ultras around the world. But the far right has been very good at trying to, you know, recruit and exploit uh, from kind of ultra curves and terraces around Europe. I mean, going to Ukraine, for instance, was was an eye-opening experience. I mean, before the Maidan Revolution, the ultras of Ukraine were considered pretty, you know, I mean, neo-fascist almost. And they've had their reputation completely rehabilitated by their actions in helping to remove Yanukovych from power and then joining the Azov Battalion and other battalions where they go and fight the Russians on the front line. So people like Andrei Beletsky, who's the leader of the, or was the leader of the Azov and other far-right figures have been very, very smart in how they picture, identify and then recruit 
people from the scene into a wider kind of far right ecosystem. So it is still a, a good recruiting ground, although for many, and this is something I discuss in the book as well, there's also on the fringes of, of the ultra scene, you asked me earlier about hooliganism. On the fringes, there is a, an arranged fighting scene, which is essentially a form of kind of unregulated, illegal MMA, right. where ultra would, would, you know, firms that connected to the ultra firms would, um, or the ultra groups, train uh, obsessively to fight in organized fights, usually with the same numbers, with weapons, uh, without weapons, sorry, you know, in very kind of highly organized secret fights. And those have become much more kind of locus of, of far-right activities as groups look to MMA to recruit rather than football. But the two worlds are kind of colliding and it's kind of, there's a lot of good research in Germany coming out about this, but it is quite, quite a frightening thing to see. Right. And one of the things that I find interesting when I, when I was reading the book is that a lot of these developments you see play out and there is still a lot of reference to Britain. Right. And Britain yeah. of the 1970s, 1980s, like that ultimate hooligan period. But isn't the ultra scene remarkably invisible or weak within England today and particularly within the Premier League? Absolutely. And there's a couple of reasons for that. I actually wanted to kind of end the book in England because all the way through 1312, you know, like you, you picked up, people are always mentioning Green Street Hooligans, for instance, as a film, the old hooligan firms of the 1980s and 90s, Millwall, West Ham. You know, these, these are teams that haven't, I mean, West Ham haven't won anything since 1980, yet people know them as much as they know Manchester United because of the connection to hooliganism and the way it's been kind of glorified in literature and in films over the years. But there's a very important thing. When we had hooliganism, which was a subculture, for many in around the world, they view hooliganism almost as a kind of twin brother of punk, you know, very anti-establishment, working class movement that stuck two fingers up to the man. But obviously living in Britain during that time was, you know, hooliganism was terrible. It was a blight. It, it destroyed football in, in our country. And that coupled with a series of kind of stadium disasters, didn't have anything to do with, with hooliganism, but something like Hillsborough, for instance, which has right. more to do with mispolicing, with the fact with the cover-up, government cover-up and the people of Liverpool had been fighting for years to get justice. But those kind of events coalesced to lead to a series of reforms that eventually leads to the Premier League. Um, all seats of stadiums are, are, are finished. Football is effectively cleaned up and gentrified. And, and then it's heavily, heavily policed to stop the return of the hooligans. Now, what that does is that that creates absolutely zero space for zero civil space for groups to exist that have their own internal rules, their own internal politics and have their own internal pressure mechanisms on the club. If you look at every place in the world that has ultras, ultras exist, of course, kind of at the grace and favour of the owner, but they know that they're too powerful to be removed. And at their very best, like they are in Germany, they're a very important uh, restriction on what uh, an owner, what uh, the football authorities can do in football. I mean, they're very effective political activists that make sure that football is a fan focused activity in terms of ticket prices, in terms of when the when the football is taking place, kickoff times, Monday night football, all of these things that have been changed because of ultra and supporter act activism. And none of that can exist in, in English football because there isn't the space for it anymore because it's been legislated out. So we've there is some space. For instance, you see the Green Brigade in, in Celtic uh, in Scotland. 
um, that have a bit of a reputation. Again, a progressive reputation as well, which is, again, rare for European ultras. And then you do see it at the lower levels where there is space for it to exist. So Clapton, which is a kind of, I'm not sure what division they're in yet, um, maybe the seventh or eighth tier of, of English football. Again, a, a group that brings on much more, uh, takes on many more progressive political causes. So they're there, but they're, they're starting almost, almost from scratch. Right. And one of the things that this uh, relates to as well is that in, in many countries, like the members are choosing the leadership of a football club. And uh, one of the things that comes through in your book is that ultras are also often related to the leadership and leadership contests, right? And, and so sometimes they're even being used by leadership candidates in, in their political struggle versus a, a rival. But on the other hand, sometimes they're also completely against the leadership or they're trying to shake off money. And this brings me to this issue that I think is, is often overlooked, but really features prominently in your book. And that's the relationship between organized crime, politics and ultra groups. And when I was reading your book, it reminded me a little bit of um, the work I read about prison gangs in the U.S., and particularly so-called mm. uh, white power, white nationalist prison gangs like the Aryan Brotherhood. And if you have seen American History Acts, for example, of it course, plays yeah. out very strongly there, right? They act as if they're all about race and about Nazis, but it's really all about organized crime. What would you say is the relationship with the most famous groups like in, in Argentina or, or in Italy about that? Is the politics just a cover-up for the organized crime or is the organized crime a means to a political end? Well, I mean, the politics is, although it's explicit to my eyes and to many people who've, who have followed the ultra movement, you know, most ultras would say they're apolitical. Ultras no politica, which is a kind of phrase. I think it was from Sampdoria in the 80s. The ultras are above the politics because uh, the, these are the bad people that exploit you. We want nothing to do with them. But what often happens is that politicians work out very quickly that this is an important constituency. So there are two things. like To get elected within a membership structure. So, for instance... One of the things that runs German football is 50 plus one. That's the, that's the system of ownership that basically makes it almost impossible for a single person to own a majority share of the club. Mm -hmm. Now, when that was looked like it might be rescinded, there was a big um, ultras and supporter group kind of uprising that, that prevented it. And one of the guys I knew from Freiburg said, you know, we spoke to the CEO of, of Borussia Dortmund and he said, we couldn't vote for this because our members would vote us out. And so that is an important distinction, but this is a, a political kind of constituency that you have to garner votes from. Right. Then you go to Argentina with the batter of, say, Boca Juniors. And one of the things that, you know, is very clear there, again, it's a membership organization. But that membership organization is being controlled by La Dosa, which is, has existed for 30, 40 years. And, you know, effectively has become a, a sort of kind of criminal organization as well. It certainly makes a lot of money out of kept being kind of tangentially attached to organized crime. And what is, what's amazing was the story that I discovered of Maurizio Macri, the former Boca president, who then goes on to become the president of the country, and how much he had to lean on La Dossa, which is an organisation that's been in turmoil with, it, with its leadership for the past few years. But certainly there have been dozens of murders um, surrounding the group. I mean, and the fact that you've got someone like Macri, who's, you know, 
very upper class member of Argentine society who wanted to become a prime minister almost from being a teenager, sorry, president from being a teenager, he had to go through La Dosa to get that springboard to become president of Boca Juniors and then to become mayor of Buenos Aires and then obviously become president. And then there's a third category, which is something which is, you see much more in Eastern Europe, which is the, the use of ultras groups as a kind of a battering ram for your movement. And this is something that the, the, the radical right in Eastern Europe, especially, has been very, very good at using is exploiting and co-opting groups from ultra groups that share a kind of political worldview, you know, to break up gay pride marches, to, you know, protest. For instance, I mean, in the Balkans, I lived in Belgrade for a long while, and this was something that happened a few years ago quite often. If there was a, for instance, Kosovo announced unilateral independence in 2008, you know, groups of ultras were on the streets and there was some alleged collusion between, you know, opposition parties that would later come to power. And so it's a very complicated relationship that ultras have have politically saying that the connection to organized crime which is something that is very evident in especially in serbia at the moment is something that shouldn't be that surprising because ultras live in a community which prides itself on being outsiders against authority you know even 1312 the title of the book it's an acronym that means all cops are bastards because it's something that i saw because they're such a heterogeneous group ultras Mm -hmm. i would see that number code everywhere it didn't matter if it was in casablanca or sarajevo or warsaw you know, they, they view themselves outside the law. And it's in the same area where you'll find, you know, organised crime, which is another subculture that finds itself outside of the law often yeah. as well. So the, the journey between the two is often is that often relatively short. Yeah, it's not surprising to see that on the fringes of that, there are people who, there are other groups who absolutely reject it as well, by the way. But there are others who see the opportunity to make money and, and take it. Right. So finally, I have one more question. And what is the most common misperception about ultras? That is that they're hooligans. We'll go back to what we started with, which right. was, you know, that, that, that it's almost a synonym, hooligans and ultras, right? Or even the ultras is the Italian word for the hooligan, which it isn't. Ultras are a complex but fascinating subgroup that's incredibly political. And these are political actors. These are political activists. And... What they prove is that a football stadium or the space within a football stadium in the curve, in the terrace, however you want to call that part, the cheapest part behind the goal, can also be a civil society space that is the, can also be a platform for societal change. We've seen that in Turkey to some degree. We've certainly seen that in Egypt. We've seen that in the Balkans on several occasions. You know, it is a far more complex world than just saying that these are kind of thugs that like to drink and like to fight. Because there are there is that element to it. But it's also, I think, a really misunderstood youth culture, one of the largest youth cultures in the world that is explicitly political, not maybe not explicitly political, but it is political. You know, it's it's something that I think by having this view of it often used through the lens of, of English football hooligans, uh, because people can't right. can differentiate different. But th- these are people who have, have played and the space that these ultras have created have played important political roles in various societies. I think, you know, that will continue, I think, if we ever get back to football. I mean, who knows what the world is going to look like after, you know, after the era of COVID. Yeah. Thank you very much for coming on the show, James. Welcome. Anytime. If you want to know more about James Montague and his work, you can follow him on Twitter at James Piotr or check out his website at jamesmontague.com. Thank you for listening. Until the next time.